Here we are. It is, um, I would say, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and certainly it is, but of course I just announced that we'll be back in uh, the Beatitudes over the summer. Um, It's going to be an interesting thing to be able to kind of bookend the sermon with those Beatitudes, but as we end today, we are in the final of four warnings that Jesus is giving his hearers. Um, And so if you're kind of tired of this last month of being like, man, this is hard stuff. It is indeed very difficult teaching that Jesus is ending his sermon on. And again, this is the sermon that he would go and travel and put on repeat so that his, his hearers would certainly understand what he was about. And so this is kind of one of those last, like last time for the people in the back, there are some things to be worried about as you consider following Jesus. That's kind of what this is about today. So let me just recap our four warnings, right? He's been, he's been juxtaposing what is true and what is false here in Matthew 7. The, the true gate, the narrow gate, and the false gate, the, the false way which is broad and leads to destruction. The true prophets and the false prophets. Last week it was true assurance, true assurance in Jesus and false assurance in Jesus, over-relying on saying the right things, but not actually following Jesus. And now he says, basically, one more time, there's another thing to be aware of as you continue to pursue Jesus in all of life, and that is that we would have a false foundation, that there is a true foundation and a false foundation. There is a firm foundation, and then there is one that is shaky, And so as we enter into our time together today, I think the question that has to be asked is, what does God expect of you? What does God expect of his believers, of his followers, of his disciples, of his apprentice? What does he he expect of you? Now, surely all of you have thought through this on one level or another because you've made up your decision today that God expects me to gather with the saints, either virtually or in person. That's an expectation he has, and so I'm going to heed that. But now this is the 28th sermon on three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to ask, what have you done with 27 and one-tenth sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. After, after covering this much ground over this much time, what's your takeaway? How have you applied the words of the King, the ascended King at the right hand of the Father? It's Ascension Sunday. What is our takeaway? Because here is the bottom line that Jesus is going to put down for us. What does he want from us today? Not someday, not, not, not when we get our act together, not when we get out of debt, not when we stop sinning, not when our kids get older and a little bit more manageable, not when we are healthier, not when we have more time. No, now, when we're, when we're going over lunch, what will our conversations be about? When we leave here and we pay bills, what will we do in those moments when we, are, when we are disconnected from our spouse, what are we going to do in those moments? Because here is the bottom line. The measure of a disciple's resiliency in their faith is measured not just by hearing Jesus' words, but by doing them. Your resiliency in the faith 
Your steadfastness in this thing called a Christian life will not be measured on whether or not you come and hear the words of Jesus, but on how you live Monday to Sunday. If you just come and listen, we're in trouble. That's the bottom line for us today. And you may say to yourself, well, I'm fine. I mean, after all, I'm in church, right? I'm fine. I'm good. I'm here, aren't I? I mean, be good with that. But after, again, 28 sermons, what have we applied? How have we lived this out? What is our buy-in into discipling environments that we provide here at the Grove, such as neighborhood groups and growth groups? What is it? Why do we do those things? It's not because we have to. It's because we truly believe that that is a normal and natural rhythm of the Christian life, to gather together in the temple, to spur one another on in, this, uh, one another on in our faith, both here in large gatherings and in smaller gatherings in the home. It's both and. But I wonder what our attitude has been and is as we get back to some semblance of normal. Is it laissez-faire? Is it come and go? Or are we bought into the process of consistently submitting ourselves to the voices of community to help spur us on? Because it's in those places, it's in the prescribed places that we have, as well as any lunch that you may have with another saint, it's in these places that obedience does not slip through the cracks of good intention and appreciation. Let me, let me just say that one more time. It's in these places that obedience does not slip through the cracks of good intention of wanting to do these things and appreciate. I mean, I just really appreciated Jesus' words today. No, instead, we do them. And so he tells us today that whether or not we simply hear his words or hear his words and do them is of internal importance. For the difference between a saved Christian and an unsaved Christian. It is the difference between a true Christian and a false Christian, a true Christian and a pseudo-Christian, a true Christian and a cultural Christian. You might say to yourself, well, what's a cultural Christian? There was a book that I recommended months ago, and I'll recommend it again. It's a red book. It's called The Unsaved Christian. It's by Dan and Sarah, and he wrote this about a cultural Christian. Cultural Christianity, what do they do? They admire Jesus, but doesn't really think he is needed, except to take the wheel in a moment of crisis. Thank you, Carrie Underwood. A cultural Christian doesn't really think about Jesus, doesn't really pray to him, surely doesn't, doesn't depend on him except whether or not to take a wheel, goes to him in a moment of need. Oh, my marriage is a wreck. Lord, help me. Oh, I might get fired today. Help me. Oh, my kid is suffering. Help me. But on the day in, day out, we forget about him. Of course, we're all a part of that culture. We breathe that air in and out, and we don't even know how much it affects us because we truly are in a culture that, God, that wants God and God's blessing with no cost. We want comfort without any delay and gratification. We want, the, we want the kingdom with no king. We want Jesus with no cross. It's in that culture, in this culture, as well as the one from before, we have to kind of consider Jesus' words and his story, his last story here, as he tells us about a wise man and a foolish man. And to be candid with you, they look really, really similar. On the surface, they look just about the same, don't they? If you, if you look at throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you look at Jesus kind of pointing out these people that all do the same things. They're all praying 
They're all giving. They're all fasting. If you looked at Matthew 6, they're all doing the same things. They all look like followers of Jesus. But then he says, no, no, you got to look below the surface here. you got to have a discerning eye. Don't judge them, but discern what's going on here. You see, it's the one that does these things in secret with the right motive to please their Father in heaven instead of being seen by everyone else with their flowing robes. And so he's telling us and he's warning us, they look the same on the surface, but there's something off at our hearts and that something off makes all the difference in the world. So he tells us about these two men, again, who are remarkably the same and yet set apart in one thing. So let's look at some of the things that are the same. Number one, they, have, they both want to build a house, which by the way, they both want to build a house in a floodplain, which you might think to yourself, that's not a very smart idea. And yet most of us live in a floodplain. That's not a very smart idea, yet we've done it. And some of us have bought multiple homes in a floodplain. I'm one of them. Both of these men want to build a house. They both want refuge. They both want to, want to build a life. That's the idea that Jesus is getting at here. They both hear Jesus' words. They will hear it. They both go to church. They're both in your neighborhood group. They might be in. They might be so committed that they're serving, that they're giving, that they're in growth group. They're doing all the things that you would do. Maybe you're doing all the things that they would do. They look the same. Their house is being built pretty much the same way. But again, Jesus' most solemn warnings aren't for those who refuse Jesus altogether. It is for those who want to follow him, those that are within the household of God. You see comparison number two, the same thing is there. Not just that they want to build a house, but their houses are basically the same. Let me just read these first several, several verses. Everyone who then hears these words of mine does and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. Okay, there's building there, there's, there's a house that's there, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because of one difference. It had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, again, same language. They are hearing the words of Jesus, and they do not do them. will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. These men are basically the same. Their purpose is the same. Their houses are the same. The storms are the same. They're in the same area. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can give in to the lie that, number one, storms won't come, and indeed he promises them, if not here, then in another piece of Scripture where he says, like, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. Storms will come, but they're, gonna not be, they're not going to be different Instead, for believers or non-believers. Instead, we will experience the exact same trials, and we have, haven't we? I mean, look at 2020. I mean, you, you could count on two hands what we all went through together. Believer or non-believer, Buddhist, Hindu, atheist, Christian, the trials were the same. We had coronavirus. We had political fallout. We had racial injustice. We had the battle for truth in the media and online. We had opinions on masks and now opinions on vaccines. And whether or not we really have the truest threat is a, is a virus or if the truest threat is mind control. I mean, these are things that like some of us probably have posted. These are things that I know probably one of the bigger trials is watching some of my friends and family post some stuff like that. And you're like, oh my gosh. And you have to discern what's true and what's not true over time. These storms have all been the same. Jesus has indeed promised us that we will have storms. 
But what comes out of the storm emerges as different. You see, these two men were wise or foolish based on one huge difference, and it was their foundations. Jesus is making this point. A true believer and a false believer can look exactly the same on the outside. But what they build their house upon, this rock, this rock of faithful obedience in Jesus will set them apart and they will either have a great fall or that you can have as much storms as you want and it will stand. The foolish man emerges because he only hears Jesus' words and does not do them. And the decision to hear only and not do, to not apply what he has heard is like a man who has built his foundation on sand. I don't know if you've ever gone to Galveston or if you've gone to Florida or Alabama or wherever your favorite beach spot is, but I went, was it last year or the year before? I don't know. It was probably two years ago. This whole last year is just mishmashed time in everybody's uh, brain. But a couple of years ago, we went to Florida, right? And we go out to uh, beautiful white sandy beaches, and Moses wants to build a big sandcastle, and so I'm sweating my behind off to get this sandcastle because the, I don't know if you know this. But the sand in Florida doesn't stick like the sand in Galveston. So you've got to add water to it. We're going back and forth to the ocean. We're building this big old thing. And we finally finished. We take a good picture. I literally am sweated through the, the shirt that I was wearing. We go back. We eat lunch. We come back. And what happened? Gone. Totally gone. And Moses was disappointed because we had done all this work. And it was washed away. See, that's the foolish man who hears the words and never does anything with them. See, an adult knows better, right? A wise person knows better. This is going to go away. It's a lot of effort, dude, but I love you, and I will do it with you. And that's the goal, right, just to be with your kid. But my son didn't know any better. He was, in a way, a fool. He didn't know that that was just going to get washed away over lunchtime or that somebody was going to kick it down or run over it with a Frisbee or whatever it may be. He didn't know, and I surely didn't warn him because I wanted to just enjoy the time. But nonetheless, that's what we're before, what's before us today, that we will build our house on a sandy foundation, and that sandy foundation is a life that simply hears the words of Jesus and does nothing with it. You see, obedience to God is the distinguishing mark of wisdom. Obedience, not just knowing what to do, but doing it when the right time calls for it. To God is the distinguishing mark of wisdom. So we have to kind of come back to this firm foundation, not just as an illustration of the sand, but this rock that it's being built upon. It is the firm foundation of obedience to Jesus. And I just said the word. I just said the word, right? Obedience. Another word uh, for that is submission. Um, and I don't know what, what happens inside of you when I say those two words, but I do know that when you're starting a new church, you're not going to put a flyer out in the mailer and like put it in your mailbox and go, this church is going to, we're going to worry about obedience and submission. Why don't you do that? Because you know that ain't going to bring anybody in. That's exciting to no one. And yet Jesus is saying that's as important to us as a firm foundation in our homes. There's not one TV show that you watch on HGTV or whatever else there is to watch them where they go in and they go, but what's the foundation like? They don't do it. They look at the walls. They look at like 
I don't know. Are they, are they still doing shiplap? Is this still a thing that Joanna and Chip are doing? I don't watch this. I don't know if they're still doing this, but that's what they're worried about. They're worried about what looks good, what dazzles you. Like, ooh, the color palette is so good. Okay. We're not thinking about a foundation, yet Jesus is drawing us back to the most important part of our lives, and that is this, obedience, submission. I remember uh, I was doing a wedding not too long ago, and uh, I talked about the, the male's relationship and their, their responsibility and the relationship is to lead and to lead in love. And the female's responsible, responsibility in the relationship is to submit as we would submit unto the Lord. And the entire row of, of, of ladies that were there go, oh, like verbally. And I just stopped and I was like, oh, we're definitely talking about this right now. We're definitely talking about submission because it is countercultural, and yet that is the call for every believer, male or female, to submit to Christ. Why? Because he's ascended. He's not just resurrected. He's ascended upon high, above every power, above every authority. Political, me, you, every authority. He reigns above it all. So Jesus here is not talking about what's most popular. He instead is talking about what will equip us for the storms that we're heading into. Will we be founded on sand or the steady foundation of trusting and following Jesus in all of life? So what are you founding your life on? What have you founded your life on? Is it simply coming and gathering and hearing and listening to podcast after podcast after podcast and, and, and reading every blog and taking in all of the news feed and every, the Gospel Coalition article and all the people and all the books? Is that what we're doing? Is that what we've made Christianity about? Or is it about living a life fully submitted to Jesus? One is sand. The other is steady. And we have these two choices, sand or the rock. And I would, you're probably, again, here thinking to yourself, Luke, I'm here, man. I could be sleeping on a rainy day. Lay off. But let me just invite us to not just count these small things as the win, but just a piece in the puzzle of spiritual maturity. Paul would say this to the Corinthian church. He says this in 2 Corinthians 13 about a normal thing that we should be doing as we gather in the saints, as we walk in life with the saints, in families, whatever it may be, he says this to the church. This is to, to Christians. 2 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. When's the last time you've done that? That's something that you make a habit of. Like you would probably be like, oh, I'm good. Why would I need to do that? Because Paul says to do it. Because God says to do it. Examine yourselves, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test, a.k.a. Jesus Christ is not in you if you are not a believer. Now, you've got to think to yourself, why is this necessary? Why is that necessary? Why are all these warnings necessary? Why is Paul continuing on with the warning of saying, examine yourself? Because we are prone to deception. And the greatest deceiver in your life, besides Satan, the greatest deceiver in your life is you. Now that's the hard truth that we have to hear in preaching the gospel to ourselves is to say, Lord, lead me into the truth about you. Lord, lead me into the truth about myself. 
Because I have a tendency to think I'm better than I really am. And I have a tendency to think that you're worse than you really are. And lead me to the truth about others. They're not my enemy. My enemy is not flesh and blood, but the principalities and the powers that Jesus reigns over. There's something in me that is deceptive. And so if we look at the wise and foolish to diagnose some self-deception, it will help, it'll be helpful for us as we continue on here. Right? The fool wants refuge without the work. They want the house, but they won't want to do the hard work. They want the reward of sitting inside on a recliner in a finished house with the preparation, without the preparation and proper dedication. And so I would ask, is your spiritual life one which simply wants the benefit of rest without actually spending time with the Lord? Are you communing with your Father daily, sitting at the feet of Jesus in awe like Mary, or are we just busy with other things like Martha? The fool hurriedly leads to finishing fast. Doesn't matter if it's done right, good enough is simply the mantra of the fool. Like, I don't know what you do when you tell your kids to go and clean their room. I just had this situation yesterday. And so, um, like, you tell your kids to go clean their room. And then they come back down like 10 minutes later, and you're like, there is no way. There's just no way. Not in 10 minutes. You can't do it. It's impossible. I saw all the things. And so I go, may I go see your room? Uh-huh. Now, yesterday, my oldest did a great job. She, like, spent, like, four hours cleaning her room because it demanded it. But there are other times when maybe all my, all my children don't do what they're supposed to do. And 10 minutes later, they come back down. Oh, yeah, man, got that thing nailed, knocked it out. And I go upstairs, and I look, and I go, looks great. And then I open up the closet. Oh, help me. Oh, there it all is. And I look under the bed, and I go, oh, help me. There it all is. So in a sense, did they clean their room? Yeah. Did they fulfill the wishes of their father? Not by a long shot. And the same can be said for us who simply just walk through the motions, just go, yeah, I guess so, I'll do it. But don't have a heart to follow and honor our God in all things. You see, the hurry leads to finishing fast. But the thing that I will tell my kids again and again and again, and this isn't, uh, well, yeah, here it is, right? You do it right the first time, and you do it once. A lazy person is going to work twice. And that's just the reality of something for my own kids or for your kids today. When they, you tell them to go and clean their room, you just go, oh, man, a lazy person's going to work twice today. Or you can do it right. Instead, the wise person, they don't rush into the finished product. You see, the parallel passage to this in Luke 6 says the wise man dug down deep. There was a, one summer where I worked for my stepdad, who was an electrician, only one summer, um, and I was, uh, I was just a helper, right? And the day that I hated the most was, and there were many, the day that I hated the most was the day um, that I had to dig a ditch. You ever dug a ditch? You ever dug anything into the earth? You ever dug a fence post? You ever dug anything? It's just hard work, brutally backbreaking work that you don't want to do Instead, you may hire someone for that, or you may rent a, uh, you know, some sort of piece of equipment to make it easier. It's not fun. It's exhausting. Before you start, you're sweating, much less when you end. And yet, the wise person does the hard work of digging down deep. 
So what makes this foundation solid? It is obedience, but let me just redeem obedience for us for just a moment. Redeem submission just for a moment on Ascension Sunday, because John would say this. Jesus says this in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So after your kids disobey a whole lot, and they don't do what you ask them to do, you may burst out to them, and you may say something like, after all I've done for you, this is how you repay me? And aren't you saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commands? This happens in our home. This is normal for us as we relate to one another. Surely this is how Jesus relates to us, that if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so John goes on in his epistle in 1 John 3 where he says, little children, let us not love in word and talk because we know that's cheap, but let us love in deed and in truth. It is in the doing that our faith comes alive, lest we be deceived. James 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, therefore deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. I used to wonder what that verse meant, and then I went bald, and then I don't look in the mirror anymore. Never. Like, I might go, okay, cool, and then go. Do I have toothbrush on my face? I don't have hair to fix. I know this is very obvious to you all, but I don't, like, there's nothing there for me to look at. There's nothing there for me to gaze at and intently stare at unless there's like a newfound zit in my 40s or whatever it may be. I know that's what you were hoping to, to hear uh, at church, but that's it, right? There's nothing there to look at. There's nothing wrong to stare at. There's nothing out of place. It just is what it is, and we came to accept that when he was 18, says the man. Right? That's just what it is. But for those of us that look intently in a mirror that maybe have hair, you're going to look, and you're going to see what's out of place. And Jesus, or James is saying, the brother of Jesus is saying, like not living a life of obedience is to look intently in the mirror, see all things out of place, and then just walk away and do nothing about it. None of us would do that. None of us would look intently in the mirror, see all the things that are wrong, and then just be like, that's eh, fine. It just doesn't happen. Instead, God is telling us to be not just hearers, but doers. So let me just end with this. The beautiful thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that it's not written or experienced or lived in a vacuum. It ends with some words for us. That at the end of this passage, it says the authority of Jesus in my Bible, right? That in verse 28 and 29, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them with one who had authority and not as their scribes. Why would we obey Jesus' words? Because he has authority. Why would we give up time at work? Why would we give up time with our kids? Why would we give up time with our spouse? Why would we give up friends and social media? Why would we give up Netflix for any length of time? Why would we submit ourselves to anyone? Because he has the authority of God. And so I end with the same question that I started with today. What does God expect of you? What is your reaction to now 28 sermons in the Sermon on the Mount, or maybe just one? Could just be one. 
What is your reaction when he, when he tells you all these things that he has said in the Sermon on the Mount about what you should do with your money? Do you hide it? Do you give it? What do you should do with your eyes? Are you going to lust in the dark and fantasize about whatever, or do you realize Jesus sees you? Do we long to pay people back for the wrongs they have committed to us, only to not do it and expect God to be impressed? Do we go for long seasons without prayer and dependence, or do we ask God for our daily bread? Do we withhold forgiveness from others until they apologize? These are all things Jesus has covered. That's not how God forgives us. No. Do we justify our anger with scorekeeping, or are we quick to reconcile with those who have something against us? Do we love our enemy? And on and on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets all up in our business, does he not? But what is our reaction? Are we astonished? Are we amazed? We just go, okay, cool, good thoughts, on to the next thing. You may ask, like, why am I asking you these things? Because it's easy to love Jesus after an emotional high or come to church expecting some emotional, like, high every time, but it's real hard to come off the mountain and follow him into the valley. And if you read Matthew 8, verse 1, just the next verse, I want you to see the, the invitation. As you've listened to these messages, as you've listened to his sermon over months now, what will be our response? Will we be like the crowds? Because in Matthew 8, 1, it says this, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Their belief turned into discipleship. Their affirmation turned into obedience, and they followed him down the mountain into the storms, into our disappointments, into whatever depression that may be uh, uh, before us, into whatever valley, whatever storms may be before us, will we continue to follow by doing? Will we affirm and wave at Jesus as he goes by? It's the question for all of us. So friends, may we be people who do not just appreciate his teachings at the top of a mountain one day, but may we follow him down the mountains into real life and wrap our entire life. We have a mission here at the Grove, inviting all people to follow Jesus in all of life. He's the only one worth following. No other news feed, no other teacher, no other no other uh, purporter of truth, whether online or in person. He's the only one worth following. And to do so in all of life. May we be that church, not just on the mountaintop, but in valleys and in storms. Let's pray together. Lord, you're the only one worth following. You're the only one that's been ascended on high. You're the only one that defeated death, that gave us life. You're the only one. So if we just pause for a moment and thought through all the ways that you have loved us, if we thought through all the ways that you have pursued your people, we would realize that your love is the rock in which we must build our lives. So Lord Jesus, help us know the truth. After four warnings of falsehoods, and truth, help us clearly discern, maybe not be deceived. May we look intently in that mirror. May we examine ourselves by your grace, by your spirit, 
And may we not walk away and do nothing about what we see. So let us look into you. Let us pursue you. Let us be a people that are forever changed because of your care and your love for us. Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you. Josue wrote about it yesterday. Cassie prayed about it today. We still can't do any of this without your spirit within us. But because you live in us, you empower us to obey. We can't do any of this on our own power. We can't do any of this for your approval. Instead, we do all of this because we have your approval. We have the satisfaction that is found in Jesus. So, Lord, motivate us. Help us to want to obey if we don't. And may we stand in grace. By the blood of Jesus, do we now sing? Do we respond? And do we live for your glory and not our own? It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.